Okay, Psalm 16, a michtam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are ex the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David speaking under the Spirit of the Lord, and that is quoted in the New Testament by Peter, and I believe Paul as well, uh, to, uh, that it is speaking specifically of Christ. You will not leave me in the ground, nor shall you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then, yes, both Peter and Paul use that as a logical argument that David is still in the grave. His grave is there in Jerusalem right now. You all know this, he's saying to him. And so he can't be speaking about himself. He must be speaking about another, speaking about Jesus Christ. So great stuff from the uh, 16th Psalm. And today we have um, Exodus 7. It's verses 1 through 7. We're in a new chapter here. This is titled Notable Obedience. Okay. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart to multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And my heart is absolutely pounding right now because I just love this word. I love everything about it. And it's just, I get reading it and thinking about what we're going to talk about. And here it's just, it's about to jump out of my insides. In our sixth of the seven verses today, there is a special emphasis placed on the deeds of Aaron and Moses. God placed us there for a reason. He loves obedience to his word, and he cherishes those who are so obedient. Hence the, tit the title of our sermon today, which is Notable Obedience. Throughout his words, there are records of people which center on exactly that premise. And I'm going to give you a couple quotes towards the end of the sermons to back that up. The question is, how will each of us be remembered? Is it your heart's desire to be remembered favorably by God? Listen now to how our text verse for today states it and see how the book of Nehemiah ends. This is from Nehemiah 13, verse 29, last verse of the uh, book of Nehemiah. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Very simple. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Is Nehemiah's prayer one that you long for in your own life. May it be so. 
Jesus said that for every idle word that men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Our words, our deeds, all of who we are and what we do will be laid out before God when we stand before him. It is a truth which is found in his superior word, and so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Three thoughts for you, as usual. The first is words for Pharaoh. This is verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. This follows directly after Moses' proclamation from last week. Remember, he felt he was unqualified for the challenge ahead. In Exodus 6, he said this, And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This was essentially repeated later at the end of the chapter with the Lord telling Moses, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. Immediately following this exchange, we come to the first verse of chapter 7, and the words, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. Some translations, in order to avoid this somehow sounding inappropriate, will say, A God. See, I have made you as a God to Pharaoh, instead of God. Either could be correct, but God is probably what is intended. The reason why this is so is because this is a modified repeat of what was said in Exodus 4, verse 16, which said, So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. There, in that verse, translators generally agree that the intent is God rather than a God. In accordance with this, Aaron is to stand then in a mediatorial role between Moses and Pharaoh. He is to be the mouthpiece of Moses who would announce whatever Moses intended. Moses, after having been assured by the Lord of his promise and capabilities, would no longer have any reason to fear Pharaoh. He would have something akin to a divine authority, and his word would eventually bring Pharaoh to his end. The power that he would display would be the power of the Lord, and Aaron would be the one to relay this. But even more than this, the people of Israel would come to understand that Moses was truly selected to bring about their deliverance. They had seen the three signs, which we saw many sermons ago, and they believed for a spell. But eventually, they lost heart in Moses. By the time the plagues were finished, they will fully understand his position as their leader. And isn't this a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ? The early Jews bowed their head and they worshipped at the coming of Christ with his fulfillment of those three signs. But eventually, they turned away from him. But the Bible says that they will come to acknowledge him in the end times, when the world heads into the tribulation period. We will see Pharaoh, who is proud and exalted, be brought low by what the Lord brings upon him through Moses. Plagues will come at his command, and they will end at his will as well. This is what it means that he would be as God to Pharaoh. But there is more. Verse 1 continues, And Aaron shall be your prophet. In the Old Testament, a prophet spoke the words that were put in his mouth by God. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, which says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them 
all that I command him. It's seen also, for example, at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1 verse 9, it says this, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. It is Moses who will stand in this special position in relation to Pharaoh by speaking through a prophet and directing Aaron as to what he should say. Thus we see why Moses should be as God to Pharaoh and why Aaron would be his prophet. And so calling Moses God to Pharaoh rather than a God to Pharaoh is surely more accurate. Interestingly though, this puts Aaron in the notable position of having been first a prophet and then a priest. Thus he pictures Christ who spoke the words of God first and then fulfilled his priestly role for his people. It is the first of many times that Aaron will picture the Lord. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you. Ultimately, though, despite the words of Moses being spoken by Aaron, it is the Lord, Jehovah, who will direct the affairs which will occur. Moses will obediently follow the Lord's directives, impart them to Aaron, and Aaron will speak them to Pharaoh. Verse 2 goes on, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of the land. The word will be repeated as directed. Aaron will be the speaker directly to Pharaoh. The term say to Aaron or speak to Aaron or something like that will be repeated several times to remind us that it is the Lord who initiates the words and then Moses conveys them on to Aaron. At other times though, there will be exchanges with Pharaoh which will appear that Moses is speaking directly to Pharaoh. Whether he does or whether he speaks through Aaron at those times isn't known. The Bible doesn't say. But when the Lord's intended words are given, it is Aaron who receives them from Moses. What is occurring here is very, very similar to the idea of the Trinity. The will of God the Father is expressed in a concrete manner through his mediator, Jesus. And this mediator's duties will be articulated with eloquence through his orator, the Holy Spirit. In the case of Moses, the Lord directs what is to be said, just as Jesus relays the words of God God the Father. That's found explicitly in John chapter 12. Here's what it says. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. From there, what is given to Moses is spoken by Aaron, just as the Holy Spirit is given to speak what Jesus possesses. That is found explicitly in John chapter 16, where it says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And one more point on this verse. Depending on what translation you use, there are different designations for the children of Israel. The NIV says, let the Israelites go. The new literal translation says, let the people of Israel go or leave. The NASB says, let the sons of Israel go. And the ISV says, let the Israelis go. In Hebrew, the term is B'nai Yisrael, literally the sons of Israel. Translators choose what they believe is the best intent, but none of them are incorrect. The 12 sons of Israel are the children of Israel, and they represent the collective groups who issue from them. So don't be, you know, 
drawn off guard by somebody saying, well, it says the children of Israel or the sons of Israel or the Israelis or whatever. There's no error. It's just a different perception of how to translate those words. The time of redemption is soon ahead. The many years of bondage are at their end. Our bodies are weary. We have toiled and bled. Soon the Lord, our deliverer, he will send. The many years we have been in bondage to sin, there seemed no hope at all for any of us. But at the cross of Calvary, our Savior did win. He defeated the devil. Hail the Lord Jesus. Now we have a sure hope in the promise of glory because of the truth contained in the gospel story. Our second thought today is my armies, my people, the children of Israel. Verses 3 through 5. Verse 3. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The first time Moses was told this was way back in Exodus 4.21, but it used a different word than here for harden. That word was chazak, a word which is used quite a few times in the coming Exodus account. But the word used here is kasha. It's used only here and in Exodus 13, verse 15. In this verse, it says that the Lord is the hardening agent. I will harden. However, in 13.15, it shows that Pharaoh is the agent of the hardening. There it says this, And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn, that word, about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. These words are being used with a definite purpose. They are given to show that the Lord is working behind the scenes to affect his purposes, and yet we are ultimately responsible for our own choices be they stubborn or be they soft and yielding to his will. By paying attention to the words that are found in the Bible, we can certainly learn more about ourselves and more about how to perceive those around us who are either belligerent to the Lord or who are responsive to him. If we can pay attention to these things, it is even possible to use them as examples to those belligerent souls in hopes of having them change their hearts. The first time the Lord told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, Moses didn't grasp the plan, and he became disheartened, feeling that he was the one that failed the Lord. We saw that last week. But the Lord knew how to manipulate Pharaoh in order to harden his heart. Moses didn't, and so he misunderstood that first rejection by both Pharaoh and by the Hebrew people. By making a polite request to let the people go into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was started. When no consequences for his refusal came about, he was thus emboldened against future requests. In the coming plagues, each will have less of an effect than the one to follow, and the first two plagues will actually be repeatable by Pharaoh's magicians. And because they are, Pharaoh will be duped into believing that his gods and his magicians are comparable to Jehovah. Thus, he will harden his own heart. It will be a passive hardening by the Lord, which will be actively responded to by Pharaoh. And the reason for this process is given as we continue. And multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. There's a truth that permeates the Bible. And I mean, it goes from the first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible. It is that God will receive the glory that he is due. He will either receive it in a repentant heart and a bowed knee, or he will receive it in judgment upon the unrepentant sinner. In his display of the signs and wonders upon Egypt, he will be more glorified. He will be more glorified in the eyes of his people at the majestic display of his wonders, and he will be more glorified in those who reject them because the wonders will be a witness against them in the judgment. Either way, God will receive the glory. 
As Egypt is a picture of the sin-filled world, the pattern holds true. Those who call on Jesus Christ give direct glory to God. And through those who reject him, he is glorified. And the pattern holds true as well for the tribulation period at the end of times, which is what is pictured right here. It is through the signs and wonders that these came about in the past. And it is through signs and wonders that they will come about in the future. Now, the word for signs here is the Hebrew word ot, O-W-T-H. It's a sign of something. The stars in Genesis 1 verse 14 are said to be given for signs. They would be used not just as pretty lights in the sky, but signs of other things. They form the constellations, which according to the Bible, give us the plan of God's redemption. The Bible shows us also that stars unite at certain times in history when certain divine occurrences occur. When King Ahaz was told to ask for a sign to confirm the Lord's word, he refused to do so. And so Isaiah turned to the people of Israel and he said this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God's signs during the coming period of this Exodus account then are not just for the eyes of the people of Egypt, but they are signs for all to read and to remember. They can't, they can even be considered as precursor signs to the parallel events of the judgment upon the world in the end times. The sign was both an immediate promise and one which looked forward to the coming Messiah. Thus, signs are given to represent other things. Now, there's another word that's used here. It's translated as wonders. It is the Hebrew word mofet. This word speaks of something out of the ordinary course of nature. These wonders would be unusual phenomena, either natural or supernatural, which cry out for an explanation. Whether natural or supernatural, they imply that the divine hand is behind them. Thus, they act as a testimonial of being a messenger of God. And I'm going to give you an example. The Red Sea. It's parting, right? That's a natural event. The Bible tells us exactly how it happened. An east wind blew all that night long. However, there is the implied in this, the divine hand behind it. First, the Red Sea doesn't just divide whenever there's an east wind. I can assure you that there have been many, many east winds since the time of the Exodus, and it hasn't parted that anybody knows of. Secondly, the east wind doesn't just blow at any given time. Sometimes it comes from the north or the south or the west, somewhere else. But the east wind blew and the waters were parted at the exact moment that was needed to deliver Israel. Therefore, it is a supernatural occurrence, even though it came about by natural causes. The parting of the Red Sea was, in essence, God's messenger to his people that he was there for them. It was also his messenger to those who saw or heard. They would be alerted to the greatness of God through it. Verse 4, but Pharaoh will not heed you. Knowing in advance both the person of Pharaoh as well as how he will respond to this series of encounters that he will have with Moses and Aaron, the Lord reminds Moses once again that there would be resistance to his words before Israel is delivered. He's being informed of this again, so the resistance will not be unexpected, and it is not to be taken as a sign of failure, which he thought he was you know, facing the last time that we saw him last week. Verse 4 continues, So that I may lay my hand on Egypt. Pharaoh represents Egypt as its leader. The actions against Pharaoh, then, are an action against Egypt. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to remind you that we have the Antichrist of the future coming. The actions against 
him are actions against the entire world because the people of the world will be behind the Antichrist. So keep that parallel in mind. All right. So the Lord says he will lay his hand on Egypt. Through signs and wonders, Jesus validated his office while at the same time his hand is on the world of sin. He defeated the devil at the cross and through the resurrection he took away the power of sin in those he redeemed. The pattern is exactingly detailed for us to see. Christ has laid his hand on the world and he has done so in a way which will allow the world to willingly follow him in victory. Verse 4 goes on, And bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. The purpose of the signs and the wonders was to progressively harden Pharaoh's heart in order to lay his hand on Egypt. And in that, the Lord will then bring his people out from Egypt. Think of the church. Christ performed his wonders, and he continues to do so today in each repentant soul who bows to him. And in this, he is gathering himself a people, bringing them out of spiritual death and decay and into his wondrous kingdom. This is all being pictured in the events of the past. Jehovah promises Moses here that he will bring out his armies and his people, or more rightly, it is translated, my armies, my people. There's no and in the original language. The people are the armies, and the second term explains the first, because they are his people. At the Exodus, there will be 603,550 men of fighting age who will depart. Along with them will be their families and they'll be their possessions. All of them are going to be delivered, as it says, by great judgments. So we have signs, wonders, and judgments. And these judgments have a purpose beyond the annihilation of Pharaoh and his armies. They're intended to stand as a memorial to the world concerning the work of the Lord. This is explained several times in the Bible, such as in Deuteronomy 2, verse 25, which says this, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish of you. So what's happening now isn't just for that immediate time, but for the future as well. These judgments had the intent of calling to mind the work of God on behalf of his people so that others would hear of them and hopefully pay heed. This was certainly the case because after their years of wilderness wanderings, which went on, you know, the 40 years there in the wilderness, this is recorded in Joshua chapter 2. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. This is Rahab the harlot speaking to the spies. And that the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for, for you when you came out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so she's remembering it, and that's what the purpose of this is. And even many years later, about 400 years or so, the surrounding people remembered the story of Israel's deliverance. Before a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, we see this recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Remember, this is about 400 years later. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Where was I? Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all of the plagues in the wilderness. Okay? 400 some years later, and they're still remembering these signs. And the Bible's recorded for us to show us that they happened so that we don't forget as well. The purpose of God's judgments upon the Egyptians was not limited to a short span of time or to an isolated location in the Middle East, but they were intended to show the world 
the whole world of his power over the elements and his care for Israel. In this then, they are intended for the people of the entire world to heed to and to learn from. First, God is God and he alone controls the elements, not man. So much for global warming and man's denial that God is really in control of the world. We're to learn that from this account right here. Secondly, God is the God of Israel. He is the God not just of Abraham as the Muslims and the confused religious world states, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, he said that this is my name as a memorial for all generations. He specifically tied them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the defender of Israel, whether Israel deserves it or not. And we have to remember that. That is absolutely crucial for us to remember. He's displaying himself through a group of people. If we miss that, then we start doing what we're doing in the world today and rejecting Israel. Third, this is the most important of all. He is Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the pictures we see in these signs and wonders, and who we will see fulfilling the judgments that are pictured as well. Thus, he is also the defender of his church and his called-out bride. In him for us, there is hope, there is assurance, and there is ultimately deliverance. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 5, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. It means double distress. It is a picture of the people of the world, people without God and without God's law. They are, in essence, in double distress. In this is another purpose for what God is doing. It is so that those who are in double distress shall know that Ami Yehovah, that I am Yehovah. In other words, God intends to demonstrate that he is who he claims to be through his signs, his wonders, and his judgments. I am the self-existent God. I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am is, and there is no other. I am Yehovah. This is the force and the intent of the words that are given in this verse. The saying that XX shall know that I am the Lord, or a near form of those words, is repeated about 75 times in the Bible. And the vast number of those times are all in one book, the book of Ezekiel. A large number of those times, it is referring to the nations surrounding Israel. All these people that are coming against them shall know that I am the Lord. But a very large percentage of them actually refer to Israel herself. In other words, it is not just the nations of the earth that need to learn this lesson, but also the very people who bear his name. The promises of future restoration and protection of Israel, which began with the return of them in 1948, are included in this right here. He has called them home, he is currently working on them, and he will continue to do so until they call out to him once again. It is both a very, very sad commentary on the Jewish people and an immense act of love, grace and mercy even covenant faithfulness on behalf of Jehovah they nailed him to a tree and yet he still longs for them to know him wonderful stuff but the question is how can we be sure that they will know that Jehovah is Jesus someday the answer is that through the claims of Jehovah in the Old Testament and the application of those claims in the New Testament there are way way too many to count but one read through the book of Isaiah alone will show an abundant number of them. I'm going to read you one verse from Isaiah chapter 44. Here's what it says in the sixth verse. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, 
I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. In that one verse, Jehovah says he is the king of Israel, a term applied to Jesus in the New Testament. He says that he is the redeemer, a term applied to Jesus. He is Jehovah Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, a term applied to Jesus in the book of James. He says, I am the first and I am the last, a term applied to Jesus in the book of Revelation. And it says that there is one God and no other. In the New Testament, guess what? That's Jesus. This one verse in a succession of verses in the book of Isaiah shows this to be the truth about Jesus Christ. And Isaiah is just one of 39 books in the Old Testament, which were all, all comprised with references to him. Explicit references, implicit references, and hidden nuggets which need to be wrestled out from the wisdom of God through study and through prayer. But in the end, they all point to Jesus. Everything God is doing in history brings us to the thought that humanity shall know that he is the Lord. He is Jehovah. He is Jesus. All intuitively, every person on earth intuitively knows that there is one God, and all will come to the sure realization that he is the God of the Bible, Jesus. Verse 5 continues, When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Again, think it through from the greater panorama of the Bible. The Lord stretched out his hand upon Egypt, and yet he did it in order to bring out the children of Israel from among them. There was intent and there was purpose in his actions. Throughout the Bible, the Lord is said to stretch out his hand for or against people groups. The symbolism here is that he stretched out his hand in a negative way on Egypt and at the same time in a positive way upon Israel. <clears throat> Mentally, we can think of an arm in motion. One motion, toppling over the enemies like bowling pins, and at the same time that arm gathers in his cherished people as if they were loved children who will rest in the safety of his own lap. And in this is the greater picture of Jesus Christ, toppling over the enemies of addiction, deceit, adultery, bitterness, <clears throat> hatred, and lies, while he draws to himself a purified people who will spend eternal days in his presence. From the land of double distress come forth the people that bear his name. And yet there's more. Man, my heart is beating so fast right now, but there's more. Because these early Exodus stories are picturing the future tribulation period, which comes after the rapture of the church, they again picture the Lord. The fully revealed Lord Jesus destroying the wicked powers in the world in order to rescue and redeem Israel once again so that he may be glorified in them and among them. The premise of the Bible, which is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, is seen in this repeating pattern. There it says this, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. God does this so that we can know what is ahead by looking behind. And he does it so that when things do repeat, that we will know that his hand is involved in that event. Every story is true, and yet every story contains more than just its immediate fulfillment. They are given for us to see the hand of the Lord in all things. How long will you harden your heart to the truth? How long will you dismiss the word of God? Even since the days of your youth, while as a child on a wayward path, you did trod. But patient is the Lord for those who will yield the heart. He continues to reach out hands scarred by nails, waiting for any who desires a fresh new start, waiting for those weary of life's many travails. So don't harden your heart and be cast away. Instead, be receptive to the truth found in his word. 
Call out to Jesus. Don't wait another day. All will find new life who call upon the Lord. Our third thought, our final thought, notable obedience, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron did so. These words are very general in nature, and they anticipate what lies ahead through the entire account of the plagues in Egypt. Everything that happens up until the departure of the Israelites will show obedience to what has been stated. There will be no fear in Pharaoh's presence, and there will be no shying back from their duties. And because of this, the words of Hebrews chapter 3 are recorded concerning the obedience of Moses to the call that he has been given. Here's what it says. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. And yet, even in this obedience, which is recorded about Moses and Aaron, there is a picture of Christ. Continuing in the same verse in Hebrews 3, we see that, yes, Moses was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast to the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What the Bible is repeatedly telling us is that it is all about Jesus. Every word is given to show us our precious Lord. The author of Hebrews is writing this for the Hebrew people, but particularly the words are directed to the Jews of the end times. They are intended to open eyes long blinded and to awaken minds that have long been dumbed down to the truth of who Jesus is and to the perseverance that they will need through the difficulties which lay before them. They will need to conduct themselves in a particular manner, just as Moses and Aaron did. Verse 6 continues, just as the Lord commanded them. The Bible is many things, one of which is a book requiring obedience. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. The Lord speaks to us. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. The Lord commands us. Moses and Aaron heard the word. They received the command and they were obedient to it. The same voice speaks to us today, though it's in the written rather than the spoken word. But despite it being written, it should be as audible to our hearts as that which fell upon the ears of Moses. How often do we see it neglected, though? We saw it in our prophecy update today. I can't believe how neglected it is. Churches dismiss those portions which they find burdensome, outdated, or old-fashioned. They make excuses for bad conduct, and they rationalize away the severity of their sin. Believe it or not, this is going to be seen in just another 25 more chapters, a time which is just a few months after the Exodus. The faithfulness of Aaron is going to take a fall when he will participate in a gross display of idolatry, which will be followed by one of the lamest excuses for what happened in the pages of the Bible and in the history of the world. And even Moses will fall prey to a short disobedience spell. His failing will cost him the privilege of leading Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land. It is always, always, always better to follow the Lord's commands, to be ready to engage the battle with confidence and not allow ourselves to fall prey to weakness, temptations, or frustrations which so easily catch us in their hold, tripping us up and bringing us into God's hand of judgment. Verse 6 continues, So they did. The whole verse reads, Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. The final portion here is not superfluous, but rather it is emphatic, and it's intended to show that they were fully compliant. Their actions were exact, they were complete, and they were in accord with the word of the Lord. Nothing was skipped and nothing was added. 
If you wonder why words like this are recorded, and you should, then you should stop and think on why they are, in fact, recorded. What does the Lord want us to see in a few extra added words that could have been left out without substantially changing the general meaning of the verse? The answer is that he wants us to see that this type of obedience to his word is actually pleasing to him, and thus it is worthy of note. In this one verse, we can think of people like good King Josiah. Imagine these words being written about you. All right, so what I want you to do is say, good King Jay, okay? Maybe good King Paul. Imagine these words being written about you. Now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. How pleasing this person must have been to the Lord. Not only are they recorded after the fact, but guess what? He and his actions were actually anticipated by the Lord before they happened. Way, way, way before his life. In 1 Kings chapter 13, this was written about Josiah. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Imagine that. It is as if the Lord himself were waiting, waiting in anticipation for this person to come along that he could so delight in. So much so that he told in advance that he was coming. And in contrast to that, guess what? There are several other levels of adherence to his word found in scripture. There's the account of Solomon. Solomon? Solomon? Proverbs? He wrote Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote the book, the Song of Solomon, right? He also wrote one of the Psalms. How do you think he was evaluated at the end of his life? Here's what it says. 1 Kings 11, verse 6. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as David, his father. Imagine that. And then there's the record of Manasseh. This guy is so much like our current president that I actually post his name as King Manasseh in my posts about him because he's so much like him. Listen to this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he, he's like 12 years old up there, but anyway. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, which I hope doesn't happen in Washington. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So wicked was Manasseh that the Lord could not forgive what he did. In Jeremiah chapter 15, this is the verdict that was pronounced upon him. And I will appoint over them four types of destruction. I hope that's not the case for America, but I think it probably is based on what we put in our office says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy, I will hand them over to trouble, to all kingdoms of the earth, which was the greatest of all of their punishments, exile from the land, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Whether you spend your time thinking about it or not, there's also a record of your actions which is being kept. Moses and Aaron were faithful in their actions before Pharaoh, and we have the record of that. They failed in the wilderness, and we have the record of that. Good kings came, and bad kings replaced them, and we have their record to instruct us as well. And your life is being recorded too. There is the record of salvation if you've called on Jesus Christ, and that is a done deal. It's once for all. But there is also the record of the deeds, which is ongoing. And all of your deeds will be held against 
the standard of God's word, all of them, everything that you do from the moment you call on Jesus Christ. Those deeds which are worthy of reward will be rewarded, and those which aren't will be burned in the fire. But Paul says that for those in Christ, the fire will only go so far, and all in him will be saved through that time of purification. Thank God for such mercy, especially when I screw up and I think, Lord, how could you continue to save me? How could you even look at me with favor? Thank God for his mercy. Our last verse of the day, verse 7. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Doesn't sound like much, does it? Get ready. There's a lot to learn from these words. First, we have the seemingly advanced ages of these two men. In fact, in the 90th Psalm, which is the oldest Psalm in the Bible, and it's the only one written by Moses, we read this. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. So if you're over 80 right now, or you're getting close, according to Moses, you have done a really good job, okay? Because your years are counted about 70, and if you're really blessed, 80. These two men, though, were not young by any stretch. It says they're 80 and 83 already. Secondly, we know from this and from Acts 7.23 and Acts 7.30 that Moses' life has thus far been divided into two equal portions of 40 years each. He was 40 when he first attempted to rescue Israel from bondage and was rejected. He's now 80 when he will accomplish the task. This pictures the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfillment of his covenant promises. Moses' heart was first turned towards his people at 40 in hopes of ending their time of bondage. However, they rejected him, and their probation continued for another 40 years. And so it was with Christ, and so it is with Israel. And so they continue on till this day, awaiting their final deliverance. Thirdly, we're told in Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, that Moses died at the age of 120 years. Thus, his life is divided into three equal portions of 40 years each. This reflects the three periods of Christ's interactions with humanity. There is the pre-Advent period. Like Moses, who lived in Pharaoh's house, Christ dwelt in heaven, right? Ruling as Jehovah and appearing only when necessary to direct events which would lead to himself. Then there is the time of Christ's first Advent, where he was rejected. And what did he do? He tended flocks over in a Gentile location. This is the Christ of the nations that we see right now in the world. And finally, there is the third period, which begins with Moses leading his people out of bondage and into 40 years under his rule. This is the Messiah of the Jews, who will redeem captive Israel and rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Three periods of Moses' life equate to these three times of Jesus' interaction with humanity. And then fourth, the dating of Moses and Aaron here. Combined with the lifespans of their father Amram and their grandfather Levi, which we saw in the generations of, of that one sermon, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, that shows us the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham concerning the years that the people of God would be afflicted. That's why those dates of their ages were given in that genealogy, and only those two people. In total, it is 430 years from when the promise was made to Abraham, right, until the giving of the law. This is found in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3. And that's all we get out of these two ages. Okay, that's not true. Fifth, the ages of Moses and Aaron show us that Aaron is older than Moses. We talked about this last week. It continues the pattern of the younger replacing the older. 
This pattern will continue on through the Bible and it will help us to understand better the doctrine of divine election as well as the grand picture of Jesus replacing Adam, the second man replacing the first. And finally, in this we see a contrast between Joseph and Moses. Joseph rose to power under Pharaoh. He was second in position to him. Think of Christ under God the Father. He was, that was at the age of 30. However, Moses is said to be as God to Pharaoh at the age of 80. The 30 years of Joseph are comparable to the 30 years of Jesus' life recorded in Luke 3, verse 23. The 80 years of Moses are comparable to the completion of Israel's two periods of exile and their coming exaltation during and after the tribulation period. Each thing that we have seen, all of it is connected to every other thing while building one upon another in order to show us a snapshot of what is going on in redemptive history. All of it, even just a single verse. All this is seen in one sentence about the age of two brothers. That is great stuff. But imagine this. If God has given so much for us to learn from in a single sentence about the ages of two brothers... How much more does he surely want us to know the overall message of the Bible? That he loves us enough to send his son to redeem us. If you've never called out to Jesus to forgive you and to restore you to our Heavenly Father, I would ask you to please give me just another moment to tell you what you need to do so that you can settle it once and for all, okay? God says that we are sinners, and we are. We inherited Adam's sin and we have our own sin. We've all told a lie. We've all done something. And the Bible says that one infraction of the law breaks the whole law. doesn't matter if you've lied or if you've killed somebody. It's breaking the law. The law is broken. And you can't go back before that sin because time is going in one direction. And that sin is back there. And so we're stuck without any fellowship with God. The connection between him and us is severed. But Christ stepped out of the infinite realm. And he put on garments of human flesh born under the law, born without sin, living the law perfectly that we can't do, and he gave his life up as a satisfaction for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And guess what? He died on, this, on the cross. So death had to be involved in his cross. I'm sorry, sin had to be involved in his cross. But he came out of the grave, which proved that he has no sin, and so the sin that was dealt with at the cross wasn't his, it was ours. It's gone. It is nailed to the cross, and it is taken away forever. And now we are in him if we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Man, I'm telling you what, this book is so amazing that every time I think about it, it just gets more intricate, and I get more astonished at how stupid I am in comparison to the marvel of what his word says. It is just astonishing what he did for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So please, if you've never asked him to just simply forgive you of your sins, do that today. Call on Jesus Christ, and he will forgive you, and it will be done forever. And then do what these guys did, notable obedience. And that's what you'll get your rewards from. Man, I can't wait to go up and get my teacup full of rewards someday. And you get a guy like Billy Graham that's probably going to have this big basket full, and he's like, but at least I'll have a teacup. Thank you, Lord. What grace and mercy. Our closing verse today comes from 2 Kings chapter 16. This is about another really crummy king of Israel. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. David's kind of the standard. He's the one that everybody else has judged against. Ahaz was one of the crummy kings. When he died, the people refused to even bury him in the tombs of Israel, the tombs of the kings of Israel. 
His life is now recorded for all to see and to contemplate. As we finish today, I would ask you to think soberly on how you will be remembered. Because it's all against this standard. Every single bit of it is going to be against this and nothing else. As Paul so eloquently showed about the word of God today. I wish we could just do that week after week, talk about what he talked. It was astonishing. Everything is tied into this book, and it is all going to be judged against this standard and nothing else. So what I would ask you to do is to live for Christ, to honor the king, and to hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. Be remembered as one of the good guys, okay? Next week is Exodus 7. It's verses 8 through 13, and it's going to build on what we've talked about today. It's called the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's an entire sermon about what does that mean? I mean, it's only six verses, but what does it mean when Pharaoh's heart was hardened? God is trying to wake us up to something really important there. That'll be our 19th Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can take those waters and he can part them and lead you through them on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. But do it according to this, okay? Do it according to this. Our poem today is called Notable Obedience. So the Lord said to Moses plainly, See, I have made you to Pharaoh as God. And Aaron, your brother, shall your prophet be. So shall it be while in Egypt you trod. You shall speak all that to you I command. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send out of his land the children of Israel. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders too in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay on Egypt my hand and bring out my armies, my people whom I designate, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by judgments great. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out upon Egypt my hand and bring out the children of Israel according to my word from among them from out of his land. Then Moses and Aaron did so, as the Bible does to us relate just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. Yes, as the written word to us does state. And Moses was 80 years of age and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is their years, as we have been told. Obedience to the Lord should be our life's desire, living our life in a manner fitting and right. Let us not get bogged down in sin's swampy mire, but may the Lord's word be our heart's delight. By applying it to all we do in our life, we will stay on the path which is correct, the one which is free from trial and strife. From God our Father, there will be no disconnect. Keep close to the word, keep in prayer always. Remember to go to church and have some fellowship there. And in your life, be blessed as you live your days. In Christ, there is joy and hope, not sadness and despair. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word and of the wonders and treasures in it given to us, of which tell of our glorious Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I just am so excited today. I think my heart's going to pop out of my chest reading about the obedience of these guys and seeing how gracious and merciful you are to them when they failed. And it just it's just a mirror for me to look at and to see my own life when I try to be obedient and I keep messing up, Lord. And I'm sure most of the people here feel the same way. They think, how could you love one like me? But you do. You love us enough to send Jesus, and it's such a great and wonderful thing. Help us to just 
get this word out, to live this word, to cherish this word, and to try to lead others that are caught in the the sin which is pervading this world to such a point that my head is swimming, to just try to get them to see that your word is all that we can cling to. If it's not, we have nothing, and we might as well just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But I know that Jesus Christ is true, and I know that your word is pure and perfect and undefiled, and that we can trust every word in it. Lord, help us to keep it in context, help us to apply it rightly, help us to teach it to others with zeal before the day that you come for us, either in death or through the rapture. And until that day, just give us the strength to pursue it and to move on. Just keep moving on in your good graces. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you, our glorious God, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the book of 1 Corinthians. Right from the hand of Paul. Notable obedience. One of the things is taking the Lord's Supper. Another is uh, following him in believer's baptism. And another is trusting that his word is true. And if his word is true, then Paul's words here are true. And that's why we're here, is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because they tell us of the Lord who died on the cross for us. It all comes back to that word. I, I tell you, it's just so precious. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. He would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim his death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Amen.